I'm going to speak this morning on a little yeast. And the passage I want to read out of is, A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. And this is in continuation on the uh, me- this messages on the kingdom that we have been giving. Before I go any further, I want to pray, and I want you to pray, and I'd like to get some people who will be my intercessors throughout this message, that it will have all the authority God wants it to have. I need a couple more. I need some prayer covering here. All right, thank you very much. Just remember to sprinkle in your listening with prayer, and just be saying, Lord, just anoint that message. Make it have power. Let's pray together. Father, your kingdom is altogether lovely and altogether beautiful, free of all of the corruption of this world. And you've called us to manifest that kingdom. We're the first fruits of that kingdom. Uh, Lord, there are many things in our life that are inconsistent with the kingdom. And our prayer this morning, right here and right now, is that you would give this message fire to burn those things away. Burn the chaff, Lord. Uh, Give this message, Lord, we pray, your authority to heal, to convict, and most importantly, to transform. And that the life of the kingdom, that life that looks like Jesus, will pulsate harder in our life. Let it be done, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have said that in this, in this series, we've said that the kingdom has always lived in the now. Because the kingdom's about life, and life is always now. There's no life in the abstract. Life is nothing more than a series of nows strung together. So the job of the kingdom person is to live in the now, to be aware of the now. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. To live in something is always a now-by-now thing. We are to integrate the kingdom and awareness of God's unsurpassable love flowing to us and our call to replicate that love to others. We're to integrate that into every thought, every breath, every heartbeat. We're to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And as we saw last week, when we do that, but only insofar as we do that, we manifest the truth that we are the first fruits of creation. The Bible calls us first fruits. Uh, using an, uh, humanity and all of creation along the analogy of a crop, we've been picked first. We are the ears of corn that have been picked from the stalk and are now having the husk ripped from us. And our one job in life is to manifest that first fruits creation. In other words, our job is to manifest now what will be true of, of the creation later on. We manifest it now. We do in the already what is not yet manifested in the cosmos as a whole. It's our main job. Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. Be the change you want to see in the world. The most important thing you can do to change the world is to be the change you want to see in the world. Don't go trying to fix the world apart from changing yourself. Rather, the main way you fix the world is by changing yourself. Be the change you want to see in the world. So also, all kingdom people are to realize that the world will someday be brought under the domain of the king and be the kingdom of God. The entire creation will someday be reconciled to God. And we're to be working for that to happen. And the way we do it is by being that change now. To be heaven on earth, right here and right now, stationed alongside the gates of Hades. Our job is to manifest the loveliness of the kingdom here and now. To be a sneak preview of heaven. To be the picked corn amidst a field of unpicked corn where they are still... Uh, encased in the ugly, inedible green things, the husk. And we manifest what it is to be corn, the freedom of the corn, the beauty of the corn, 
We manifest that, and that's what, as we do that, that's what lures, if you will, or ripens the other stalks of the ears of corn to get pecked. Uh, and, and we move the kingdom forward just by manifesting the truth of the kingdom. Now, to do that requires letting a lot of things that in this fallen world are considered normal, letting a lot of those things just get peeled off of us. And I want to speak specifically this morning about one area of our life, but really it addresses all areas of our life that I think we often overlook. It's, it's uh, captured by Paul's teaching that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. Here's the problem, and I think this is, this is uh, a fundamental reason why we maybe don't manifest the life of Jesus Christ. We don't manifest the kingdom of God as much in our life as we should. It's the fact that we tend to compartmentalize our life. We Westerners tend to uh, put things in categories and not see the interrelatedness of all things. For example, we tend to see our church life over here, but our non-church life over there. Our, our faith is one thing, but our ordinary life Day by day, we tend to live and think and feel pretty much like atheists. But then we do this other compartmentalized thing called being Christian. See, we don't integrate them very well. We tend to think that what goes on at the office is the office's problem and, and it doesn't have anything to do with what we do at home. And we tend to think that our attitude towards our bo boss doesn't affect our attitude towards our husband, and our attitude towards our husband doesn't affect our attitude towards our kids, and our attitude towards our mom and dad doesn't affect our attitude towards anybody else. We tend to compartmentalize and file things. This is over here, and that is over there. When, as a matter of fact, everything is related to everything else. And when we don't see this, it crimps. It, 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 it uh, conceals or suppresses the kingdom, of, uh, kingdom life that is within us. Uh, I was given a book uh, the other day. Not the other day, a couple weeks ago. Recommended a book. It's very important that you know, uh, as I get into this, that my wife isn't the one that recommended this book to me. In fact, I don't particularly need this book. But the person thought it would be informative for a pastor to uh, have this book and give it to people who do need it. And so it's by, a book by Dr. Kevin Lehman called Sheet Music. Uncovering the Secrets of Sexual Intimacy in Marriage. <laughs> and like I said, I'm, I, there's not much I can learn from this, but it, it actually is a very good book. <clears throat> My wife and I are now in the process of reading it. And um, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's really quite interesting. Um, here is something he says. It's on page 23. And I really would recommend this book for all married couples. It's, it can't hurt, right? It can't hurt. Maybe, maybe you'll learn a thing or two. Uh, here's what it says. You, it's amazing how much we don't know. Your marriage bed is one of the most crowded places on the face of the earth. <laughs> it's teeming with people, some of whom you've never met. Ah! But they're all there, all affecting your sexual intimacy, looking over your shoulder, and shaping the quality of your sexual pleasure. I feel the attention I'm getting right now. You guys, <laughs> I have got everyone's ear right now. <laughs> Okay, don't look behind the pillow, but be aware that your parents are looking right beneath it. Ah! And if you think that's bad, you also better get used to your in-laws who are hiding under your spouse's pillow. Oh, I get a visual of that, and it doesn't help my sex life at all. It's like, this was supposed to help. Oh, all right. The point the guy's making is, is actually quite profound. Uh, 
A couple's sex life in marriage is a microcosm of life. It can't be compartmentalized from any other area of life. Uh, the, the, the man's attitude towards his mother and the wife's attitude towards her father and the man's attitude towards his mother-in-law and the wife's attitude towards the father-in-law all are, are part of what goes on in the intimacy of the, the, the marriage. Um, in fact, what's going on in the past, uh, your attitude towards uh, past people you've known, things that have been done to you, uh, perhaps your ex-spouse, perhaps other lovers that you had, all those experiences and your attitude towards them in the present, they can't be compartmentalized or filed over here while your, the, the sexuality in your marriage is filed over here. It's all interrelated. And if you don't understand that, it might, it might hinder somewhat the, the, the intimacy that you share together in, in marriage. We think we can keep, keep things sec- separate, but we can't. In fact, everything that goes on throughout the day and has gone on throughout the week, even apart from our attitude towards in-laws and parents and past people, the events of the day all are related to what goes on in the intimate moments in a marriage. Men, listen up, because we're particularly dumb on this one. I mean, men, you guys, honestly, you know, here, here's kind of how guys are wired. We got this on switch and off switch, you know, and it's not related to anything else. We can have a knockdown, drag out fight with our wife, and, and uh, you know, it's not resolved, you know, and everyone's mad. But all of a sudden, it's, hey, it's nine o'clock, and I'm feeling kind of frisky. Let's hop in the sack. And, and, uh, and all the guys will, who are married know that it doesn't quite work like that, does it? It's like, no, you can't, you can't just file it over here. Like, like that's just a biological thing. One of the most profound quotes I read, and I don't know where I read it, but it helped me a lot. It, 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 it said, here, men reframe house chores as, house chores as foreplay. Uh, and, and doing the dishes, that's part of the sexuality, and, and vacuuming the floor and helping out with the kids and, and all those things. I learned that, that a light bulb that I didn't fix two weeks ago that I was supposed to fix, uh, that can't be filed apart from what goes on in the intimacy moments of my marriage. It's all part of that. And sometimes guys think that women are using sex as leverage to get them to do work, which maybe happens once in a while. But, but the reality is that it's all part of life, you see? And, and I, generally speaking, don't want to get into stereotypes, but women tend to have a more holistic uh, perception of that than men do. Our sexuality is a microcosm of life. And our attitude towards everything and what's going on, it all is a part of that. And it's a false view of life to think that you can separate it out and treat it as something different. If you don't get anything else out of this message, get this point, because it applies to all of life. Everything is connected to everything else. Everything is connected to everything else. And I think sexuality is particularly sensitive to that truth because it is the sign of the covenant, the marriage covenant. It's a very important aspect of human life. So it, it tends to be particularly sensitive to that, but it applies to all life. You may think that the reason why your, your, your intimacy is mediocre is because your husband is clumsy or your wife is unresponsive, when in fact it may be that the problem has to do with something or someone that you don't think about anymore, something in the past, something, an attitude over here or back there or that event or that unforgiveness over here, and it all affects. A little, a little yeast can leaven the whole batch of dough. It applies to all of life. Look at this passage in in Paul, Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. 
you'll note there in this passage two different Greek words, but they're very closely related. Be angry is, is or, or, orgizo. It comes from the word orge, which the root of it means hot. Be hot with anger, and that's not a sin. He says, be angry, but don't sin. Anger is, is a natural reaction that we have when something we value is devalued. That's orge. You, you get mad. If I go out, outside and I, I like my car, and if someone's scratching it up with, uh, with, with a keychain just to, for the fun of it, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be mad. Because I value that, and you're devaluing it. So orge is not sin. That's a natural thing. Now, what, what you value maybe is pe- petty. Maybe it's even sinful. But the fact that you get angry when what you value is devalued is normal. Got that? Orge is normal. But Paul says, don't sin when you have orge. And here's one way you can sin when you have orge. You can take it to bed with you. Uh, you, you let the sun go down on your orge. And now he uses a different word, para orge. Para orgismos. Though it, it has the word orge there, just like previously, but it's, it, he, he attaches the prefix para, para orge. And para means down under or submerged. It can be translated bitter. An, a, an anger that has been internalized, it's been submerged. When you go to bed with your orge, you're angry, but you don't resolve it, you don't deal with it, you, you take it, you sleep on it, now it becomes para orge. And it becomes a bitter thing. And whereas the anger initially was about the car, when you, when, you, when you let it inside and go to bed with it, let the sun go down on it night after night, it begins to be part of who you are. It's no longer just about the car. It begins to pollute your perception of everything. Orge, when it's swallowed, when it's internalized, becomes part of your system. You can't compartmentalize it. You can't, you can't keep it about this one thing. Rather, it begins to pollute your entire life. It's... The picture I get is sort of like someone lighting up a cigar in a house. He may tell his wife, oh, th- I, I, listen, this is just in the bedroom here, and it won't you know, smell up the whole house. But she knows doggone well that you cannot contain cigar smoke. It stinks up the whole house. You're going to smell it all over the place. Uh, wrath, anger, malice is kind of like that. It, it starts off being about this, which is fine. That's not sin. But when you internalize it, it starts to stink up the whole system. It starts to affect your attitude towards everything. You may think you can compartmentalize and contain your anger, unresolved anger to your father that you go to bed with every night. No, you don't go to bed with your father. The anger that you take with you and and, and sleep on every night. Um, You may think you can contain that, but as a matter of fact, it's polluting everything. And your anger towards the media or your anger towards your mother or the anger towards the boss at work or the anger towards the coworker that's always trying to get you fired or the anger towards the nasty neighbor or the anger towards the terrorists or the anger towards the conservatives or the anger towards the liberals, you may think that it's only about them. But if, if, it, if you live in that anger, it pollutes your entire being. It's the cigar lit up in the core of your soul. And it begins to affect your view of other people, your view of life, your view of government, your view of God. You become jaundiced. Uh, and, and the world starts looking a different color. I think this is why, honestly, why uh, the most cynical people on the planet, most angry people on the planet, most mean-spirited people on the planet are former idealists who had dreams about the world and they were going to change the world and they were going to fix the world. And then they found out that the world isn't all that fixable, and they become angry, they become disgruntled, they get mad at this that won't change, and that that won't change, and this that won't change. The gulf between their dreams and reality creates anger, and they sleep on it. And they internalize it, and before you know it, it begins to pollute their entire system. I'm convinced this is why, at least in my experience, some Christians are kind of angry people. 
They're just mad. They're just mad at, at this, that, and the other thing because the world's so sinful and these people are so sinful and, and yada, yada, yada. And it can be that what they're angry at is perfectly legitimate. But when you go to bed with it, when you sleep on it, it becomes part of you and begins to pollute your, your entire being. And see, the most sinister part of all this is that para-orge and any internalized non-kingdom emotion, uh, it's a cancer, and it grows subtly, and we don't normally even notice it. It changes us without, noticing, without our noticing it. We get used to it. I used to spend two years living with my grandpa who always smoked cigars, and, and we, we didn't notice the cigar smoke. You, you get used to it. You get acclimated to anything that you're around. You get used to the dark. It changes us, but so slowly, so subtly, that we, we don't make the connection between how our life has changed and the original thing that we were angry about or that we had vengeance towards. We just find all of a sudden, you know, we're... we're not all of a sudden, but we, we slowly become less happy people. We don't feel the presence of God like we used to. We don't feel emotions as deeply as we used to. We're kind of grouchier than we used to. We're sort of ornery. The fuse is a little bit shorter. Uh, you know, it's just, life isn't as pleasurable. We're not as fully alive as we used to be, but it didn't happen overnight. It happened through a slow process of pollution. And it's very hard for us, especially in the West with our compartmentalization, to even notice that we've changed so much, let alone make the connection between where we are right now and that thing that happened 14 years ago where the process started. The unforgiveness, the anger that we internalized. And see, the little yeast of bitterness, the little yeast of para-orge has now been leavening the whole batch of dough. This is why Paul says this. He goes on to say in Ephesians 4, he says, right after he tells us not to go to bed with our anger, let go of it, let go of it. Because you're giving room for the devil. You're, you're, you're creating a room for him to begin to pollute your whole system, to come and kill, steal, and destroy the life that God has given you. Paul says this, Put away from you all bitterness and all wrath, all anger, all wrangling, all slander, together with all malice. Put it all away. Slander and wrangling has to do with being argumentative and mean-spirited in your speech. Instead of having any of that, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. And then he gives that passage that we have quoted so many times in this kingdom series. He says, therefore, in the light of all this, be imitators of God. You're children of God. Be imitators of God. Live in love as, God, as, as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Everything that's inconsistent with Christ's love, put away from you. All the malice, put it away. All the anger, put it away. All the bitterness, put it away. All the unforgiveness, put it away. All the violence, put it away. Purge yourself of all of that. Because you are first fruits of the new creation. Let that first fruit nature shine. You are in Christ Jesus. Put off everything that's not consistent with Christ Jesus. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Put off everything that's not consistent with the Holy Spirit. All of it. Now, there's a part of our brain that goes, but, 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 but. But you don't understand, but you don't know what happened to me. You don't know the circumstances I've been in. You don't know how I was raised. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she did to me. You don't know this, that, or the other thing. Anybody who understood, did you get all that down before? <laughs> Anybody who, <laughs> you got to pray for our, our signer here. <laughs> she has to go to a, a, you know, a hand massager after the service just to rest her hands. But see, this is so crucial. This is so crucial. 
we, 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 we say anybody who, who uh, went through what I went through or am now going through would be angry, would be mad, would just find it so hard to forgive. And you know what? That's probably true. Something that is valuable has been devalued. And, and, and so orge is, orge is understandable. Para orge, even in human terms, that is understandable. I can understand how you'd have that. But because on human terms it's understandable, because on human terms it might be justified, does not mean you should have it. Para orge is cancer. The only one who pays for it is you. That's why Paul says, put it all away. No ifs, ands, or buts. However it got there, it was maybe terrible. It was unjust. It was mean. It was demonic. However it got there, though, it doesn't do you any good to have it to be part of your system. It's destroying you. It's suppressing the kingdom life that you were created to to show. It goes against your nature as a kingdom person. Rid yourself of everything in your being that's not consistent with heaven. If it won't be in heaven, get rid of it now. And that's how you manifest heaven now. That's how you are the first fruits now. It says this in Proverbs chapter 4. He says, keep or guard, keep your heart, guard your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Be vigilant. Watch over that heart. Because... Everything in life, every emotion, every thought, every behavior, everything comes out of that heart, that innermost being. Guard it. Guard it. Don't let anything poisonous get in there because if the, if the well is poisoned, every, everything that comes out of that well is going to be contaminated with that poison. You drop some cyanide in a village well, and everybody who drinks from that well is going to get a little bit sick and maybe die. So also when the inner, our innermost being attaches, identifies with, internalizes any element, however small it may seem, any element of malice, hatred, violence, vengeance, mean-spiritedness, any element of that begins to pollute the whole thing. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. And so the main job as kingdom people is to guard our heart, to realize that our heart in Christ is Christ-like, and everything that's inconsistent with it, let it go. However much the culture, however much the fallen world may say, oh, that's natural, that's normal, that's understandable, that's justified. It doesn't matter. It probably is justified in human terms, but as a kingdom person, you don't need it, and it's going to eat you alive. When we purge off of ourselves everything that's inconsistent with heaven, it's good for us. Because now, now we, we, we are free. We are as in bondage as we are defined by the anger and the animosity and the malice that we, we have acquired in our life. Now you're free. It's good for you to purge yourself of everything that's not consistent with the kingdom. And it's also good for the world. Because the more you manifest the kingdom, the more you're driving the world inch by inch toward the kingdom that God has designed the world to finally uh, come to. I'm going to give an example of this. I'm going to flesh this out a little bit further by going to 1 Peter. Now, Peter's writing to a congregation in the early church, and they're kind of typical in this respect. They were facing persecution. Uh, They were uh, facing the possibility, in fact, some already were beaten, put in prison, and facing possible death. And the reason this was happening was because people in the first century, kingdom people in the first century, they, they lived by the law as much as possible. The Bible says obey the laws of the land. But when there was a conflict between the law of the land and their allegiance to God, the law of the land had to be broken. 
And so they were willing to break laws. One of the laws they used to break quite frequently was the law that you're supposed to pledge allegiance to the emperor. They would have statues of the emperor, and it was a citizen's duty to, uh, in appropriate context, just kind of nod like this before the, the emperor. And the Roman government didn't care what you believed in your heart about the emperor. Uh, they just wanted you to, to perform your citizen duty of honoring the emperor. And see, the Christians wouldn't do that because our, our allegiance is totally to Jesus Christ. He's our Lord, not the emperor. He's our Lord, not the state. So we're not going to pledge our allegiance to the emperor. And this landed them in prison. Put them in a position where many of them were beaten and some of them were put to death. Another thing that they used to break the law on, we know from history, is this. It was uh, in the Roman world, they, uh, a Roman citizen male had the right to decide for his family who would live and who would die, referring to newborn babies. A baby was born, if he wanted the baby, he said, okay, we're going to keep it. If he didn't want the baby, he said, no, the baby's got to go. And it was considered a little bit indecent, even though it was illegal. So what would happen is that night, they take the uh, baby out and throw it in the water off the bridge or put it out on the mountaintop for the wild animals to get or something, but they just would get rid of the baby. So the Christians, what they did is they hid underneath the bridges that night, and when they'd hear a plop of water in the ground, they'd, as quietly as possible, because this was illegal. In fact, one of the main criticisms of the early church is that they undermined family values. Because they were undermining the authority of the father. That's how they were perceived, these revolutionary radicals. And so they'd swim out and, and, and rescue the baby, or they'd walk the hillsides at night trying to find these babies. And this got them in a lot of trouble. So Peter's writing to a group of Christians. We don't know exactly what activity they were involved in, but they are now facing possible persecution. And here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. And the reason they're blessed is because they get the opportunity to follow the example of Jesus Christ, to hang on the cross. You are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. Don't fear what those ordinary human beings fear. It says in Revelation 12, I just read this the other day, it says they overcame by the power of the Lamb. They followed the Lamb and did not cling to their own lives. That's what it is to follow the Lamb. We're saying this morning, I will follow. To follow means you follow his example. He's a lamb. He's the lamb. We're going to follow him and not cling to our own life. So Peter reminds them, don't cling to your own life. In your hearts, listen to this now. In your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Sanctify Christ in your heart as Lord. Set him aside. Make sure he's the Lord of your heart. Guard your heart with all vigilance. Especially in the situation where they're going to be beating you, mocking you, and possibly setting you on fire or, or feeding you to the lions. Guard your heart. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you and accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with, listen to this, with gentleness and reverence. These people are beating you. Yet answer them gently and with reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, when you are beaten, when you are abused, uh, when those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ, they will be put to shame. Okay, now, now I want to unpack this a little bit. This is so crucial. Give me all your attention here. He's saying this. I'm going to unpack this. When you're arrested, when you're beaten, when you're mocked, and when you're possibly fed to the lions, make sure of this one thing. Your heart stays pure. Your conscience stays pure. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. And don't let anything in your heart that's inconsistent with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because as you're facing those persecutors, there'll be an inclination, a fallen, fleshy inclination to want to fight back, 
to want to just get angry, to want to defend yourself, to want to strike, to want to exact vengeance, to be full of hate. Guard your heart against all of that. Don't let that creep in. Rather, respond with gentleness and reverence. Now, this is exactly what Jesus taught. It's what Paul taught. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, he says, Do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, he uses the word there, anthistomy, which doesn't mean, when he says, do not anthistomy an enemy, doesn't mean, oh, just be a piece of, you know, a milk toast and let people just, hey, you want to do evil? Go ahead, I'm not going to stop you. No, there is a response. In fact, Jesus gives us a response. But what the word means is this. Don't, re- the, the, the picture you get is someone's pushing you this way, don't push back with equal force. Don't fight tit for tat, as it were, this tit for tat game. Um, uh, don't respond in like manner. Because when you do that, you now sink to the level of the person who's being evil towards you. Rather, when you respond, do it in an altogether surprising way. You turn the other cheek. Uh, you, you go the second mile. Don't, he's saying, don't become your enemy. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 12, says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. He's talking to people who are going to be persecuted here. And he's saying, don't, re- don't do evil for evil, violence for violence. Rather, and how you respond, have a, always an eye for what all consider to be noble. Take the high road, he's saying. A few verses later, he says this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You are going to conquer evil, but you do it by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, by not clinging to your life. Overcome evil, but do it with good. What Peter and Paul and Jesus are all saying is don't sink to the level of the person doing the evil against you, whether it's someone in your past or someone in your present. Don't let them define you. Whatever element of bitterness and unresolved anger, para orge, that we internalize, to that degree we've let the person who did evil to us define us. If, for example, a, a woman who was raped lives in the rage of that rape, She's now given her rapist not only the authority to rape her, but to define her the rest of her life. And that rage now will be killing, stealing, and destroying what is there. Everyone can understand and empathize with how you'd be living in rage over something evil done to you. But because it's understandable does not mean it's a good thing for a kingdom person to have. you got to let go of it. Talked to a person after the first service this morning whose father was brutally murdered a year ago. And the man is now in trial, but it looks like he's going to go free. And she, it's just destroying her life. It's eating her alive. And I can hear that and understand. She's replaying the murder over and over again. And there's this anger, that rage, something that she valued so preciously was devalued. But what she needs to see is that she's simply empowering the murderer more uh, by, by living in that, by letting him define her. The way out, the only way out, is to be angry but don't sin. To let it go, to let it go. Sanctify Christ in your heart and keep a clear conscience. Put away the old self, the bitterness, all malice, all hatred, all slander, and instead, as Paul says, be tender-hearted, kind. Live in love as Christ loved us, which is to say we live in forgiveness as Christ has forgiven us. And when we do that, it not only frees us to live, but you're also loving your enemies. 
And this is how the mustard seed goes forward. It's, a to- it's, it's the, way the, the, the kingdom way of changing people and changing society. Because when you don't respond evil with evil, but rather respond evil with good in a Christ-like way, you now, as Peter says, you shame them. You bring shame on them. The way Paul puts it is like this. He says uh, in the same passage that we were reading earlier, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. He's saying, don't play God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There'll be a time when, when all the accounts will be you know, reckoned, and that's God's job. Our job is never to do that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So let go of all vengeance. Rather, rather than being vengeful in your thoughts or your attitude or your emotions or your behavior, rather, if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's hungry, then feed him. Listen to this. For by doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Now you could read that and say, ah, all right, we are going to get him then, finally. I'll, I'll pour a bunch of coals on his head. I'll pretend like I really care about him, you know. But Paul obviously isn't saying that because he just said, don't have any vengeance. Leave that to God. The phrase, put burning coals on someone's head, it was an idiomatic expression that simply meant this. You bring them under conviction. You expose the shame of what they're doing. When you respond in an unexpected way, rather than evil with evil, you expose the ugliness of the person that's doing the evil. When we respond anger with anger, evil with evil, violence with violence, hatred with hatred, what we do is we legitimize what's being done, or at least make it easier for them to do it to us. We lock them in on their disposition, and we lock ourselves in on their disposition because now we're letting their disposition define us. This is what the cycle of violence that's run the world throughout history is all about. There is a way out, and it's the way of Calvary. When, instead of responding with anger and hatred and malice, when we, when we respond with kindness and tenderness, as he says, with, with gentleness and reverence, uh, when, when we, when we uh, don't uh, resist evil, force with force in like manner, now we make it hard for them to do what they're doing, and we hold up a mirror to the ugliness of what they're doing. And that opens up the door of the possibility that they'll see it and change. They'll see, they'll see the shame, the evil of it, and will turn and repent from it. This is how we love our enemies. To really care about changing them. As kingdom people, our job is never to conquer the enemy. The job is to convert the enemy. And see... In the early church, in the early, one of the main ways the early church grew was by people seeing the beauty of how Christian people died. The word witness became synonymous with, with uh, dying, martyr. It originally just meant to witness, but it became synonymous with dying because so many people were witnessing by dying. And uh, they, they, they bring them in the gladiator stadium, and most of the people when they were being executed would be, be reviling and angry and bitter and, you know, you know whatever. And see, that just adds to the fun. It's like, good, oh yeah, come on, get madder. You know, that's what they want. But the Christians would be brought in. And what they do is they'd pray for the, for the people in the Colosseum. They'd pray for those. They'd pray out loud so people could hear. Father, forgive them. Uh, they know not what they do. Uh, Lord, uh, don't hold this to their charge. And they wouldn't, and see, somehow that takes the fun out of it, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, some people would see that. We know of Roman soldiers where they look at that. And they would wonder, how on earth can these people have this? They're concerned about us when they're being fed to lions. And they see the evil of what they're doing. And it brings about the possibility of repentance. 
This is how the kingdom grew in the early church, and this is how the kingdom is, is to grow today. In our own lives, in our families, it works in our families, it works in our, 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 with our neighbors, it works in the workplace. Uh, don't return evil with evil, but return evil with good. It even works in the nation. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. This is how Martin Luther King changed the face of this nation. When it came to getting rid of Jim Crow laws and, and whatever, he trained his people. He, he said, we're going to be Christ-like. We will not respond to evil with evil. We will not take up arms. We will not revile. We won't obey these laws because these are unjust laws. But neither will we retaliate. Rather, we'll live in, and act in such a way that will expose the ugliness of what's being done to us. And as it did with Jesus, it may cost us a whole lot. But we are to trust power under rather than power over. That was his whole, whole demeanor. There were people who broke off, like Malcolm X and whatever, and they said, no, we got to take up arms. And they wanted a civil war and the bloodshed and whatever, which would just lock the opponents in and their various positions. But Martin Luther King, this was the genius of it. He said, let's take the Calvary principle and apply it to the nation. And, and it has a power to change people's hearts. When people saw on television all those black youth being hosed down uh, with the, 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 as the police went and got out their big hoses and, and hosed them down, when people saw the ugliness of that, there's something that says, wait a minute, something's wrong. Something's, is this coming out of our heart? And then there's a possibility of change. It works on every area of our life. Um, Mahatma Gandhi freed India from oppressive British rule by using this principle. That, that we're going to live in such a way that we're going to take the noble road, the high road, the Calvary road, and rather than and, uh, lock in uh, with their anger and their violence and injustice, we'll just expose it by giving a beautiful contrast to it, a beautiful response, and that's the one thing. See, this is why I, I really grieve when I see Christians angry at the world especially when it's on television. We're, we're going to rule these sinners out. This is wrong. And, and we're, we're just going to win this war. And, and they're like, you know, see that there's an anger that is there. And I understand the anger. Something that is valuable is being devalued. But see, that anger, far from changing anybody, it locks people into their positions. And it gives them a reason to reject Christ. You've now legitimized that. Whereas if we just do Calvary to people and be the first fruits. We don't need to be mad at the world. Uh, we don't need to be mad at sinners. Just, just be the first fruits. Don't get mad at the unpicked fruit. Just, just uh, be picked fruit. Don't get mad at the darkness. Just be light. And see, that has the possibility of changing the world. Um, I close with this. Let me just say three things. That kingdom approach. That kingdom approach requires, here's, here's the tough thing about it. It's a lot easier to be angry and mad and bitter. This kingdom approach requires that we purge out of our heart, as Paul says, all malice, all bitterness, all anger, all slander. Purge every bit of it. It doesn't work if in your heart of hearts you really don't care about your enemy. See, Martin Luther King was saying the, the, the way to go forward is to care about the oppressor because they're being dehumanized by oppressing us. So we want to free them as well as us, and we're going to act in love. Only if you really have that love and concern does this thing ever work. If you really hate them, but you're not trying to like pretend like you like them, and oh, God, no, I see, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It all hangs on people having a real kingdom heart. So here's the three things I close with. Number one, have the wisdom from above, James 3.17. Have the wisdom from above to see how things are interrelated. Don't buy into the compartmentalizing thing. You are a unitary whole person. Everything is related to everything else. See the connectedness of things. 
Try to connect the dots between the fact that maybe now your, your, your temper is shorter than it used to be and unforgiveness that happened three years ago. Or the fact that you can't feel God's presence like you used to, but you're harboring this animosity towards this person or that, uh, that person. Live in the wisdom that a little yeast really does leaven the whole batch of dough and get every bit of yeast out of your system. Secondly, forgive everything about everyone, period. Forgive everything about everyone. Our attitude has got to be the attitude of Jesus when he said, uh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. He's dying on the cross. He's praying for the people who are crucifying him, and he's saying, forgive them. The king, as Christ saturates our heart, our attitude is we want to see everybody forgiven. I want to see everybody reconciled to each other and to God. Uh, it's a heart of forgiveness. Stephen, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, He's being stoned. If crucifixion is the worst way to die, being stoned is the second worst way to die. They didn't use like big rocks where they crushed his head and then it was over. They used little rocks and they throw it. You're getting pecked to death, you know? So they're throwing rocks at him. And see, if, 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 if Stephen would have picked up rocks and thrown it back and say, you guys are terrible, you're, you're evil, well, that would have just made it funner. That would have like made them, it would have legitimized in their own minds what they were doing. But instead, Stephen knelt on the ground and, and Luke says he prayed so, loud enough so people could hear. He said, Father, do not lay this to their charge. Don't hold this against them. Now put yourself in the, in the position of the stoner. Somehow it's like, oh, it's a little harder to throw it at him. And see, it's like, this is kind of ugly, isn't it? And maybe, just maybe, I don't know, but you know, Saul was present there and two chapters later he became the Apostle Paul. And maybe something stuck in there, I don't know. But see, Stephen's heart and the heart of Jesus is the heart that we need to have. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Everybody of everything. Now, now listen. Forgiveness does not mean that you condone what happened at all. One of the biggest lies out of the pit of hell is that forgiveness means you're minimizing something. The devil uses that just to keep us harboring bitterness. It doesn't mean anything like that. It just means you trust God to take care of it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Uh, it doesn't mean you condone it. It doesn't mean you minimize it. It doesn't mean that you like the person. It doesn't mean that you have warm fuzzies towards them. It doesn't mean that you trust the person. It doesn't mean that you want to be hanging around with the person. No, because the person may be really nasty and, and maybe, uh, you know, every time you're around them, they devalue what you value. They belittle you. Well, you love yourself too, so why would you put yourself in that vicinity? Maybe they're not trustworthy. There are people I wouldn't buy a car from. You see, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Forgiveness is simply a matter of releasing somebody. Unforgiveness is saying, you owe me. Forgiveness is saying, I, I, I close this account. You can only do it when you no longer feel you need to get from them what you didn't get from them. And that only happens when you get your entire life from Jesus Christ. When you, when you say, Lord, you're my father, you're my life, you are my source that we sang about this morning. When you get your fullness of life, there's a fullness there, and now you can just close the accounts. I close the accounts. I just, you, you guys, this is freedom. This is freedom. To live free, to have no accounts, no accounts. Yeah, you get angry, then close the account. Close the account, release it. Uh, God, God will take care of that right now. Uh, uh, I get my life from Jesus Christ. And that is freedom. It's, it it, it depollutes you. It purges you. Uh, it, it is, as I said last service, and probably shouldn't say again, but it is a spiritual enema. Get all of that stuff out of you. Just, man, just be free, you guys. And see, and maybe that there's a piece over here that seems small. It seems so small. Okay, I hate my mother, but so what? You should, you know. But the rest of my life is lovely. No, no, a little yeast leavens the whole, the whole lump. It's polluting you. 
I, I recently had a thing where I never even connected the dots at all. It was a little tiny thing. It seems so normal to have this and da, da, da But I released it. And it's something that, yeah, it's a very much of a personal conviction thing. But I released it. And whoa, it's like, I, I, I thought it was free before, but this feels more free. There's, there's more kingdom life in me. I, letting this little thing go, it's like all of a sudden there's this wholeness there. I'm seeing things I didn't see before, and I'm feeling things I didn't feel before. The room is a little bit less uh, foggy with cigar smoke, if you're getting the analogy. It's like, well, this really feels, let it go, let it go, let it go. Forgive everything about everyone. And finally, number three, guard your heart with all vigilance. There is a constant effort on the part of the enemy to pollute you. He wants to pollute you because that will suppress the life of the first fruits, the life of the kingdom in your life. He, Jesus wants to have abundant life. Every ounce of malice towards anyone, every ounce of bitterness, anger, unresolved conflict, it, 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 every, every bit of it suppresses to some degree, kills, steals, and destroys to some degree that abundant life that Jesus Christ has already given you. Anyone around the world, anyone in the past, all of it, be free. Be free of it. Get your life from Christ and let it go. Let it go. I want to close with a one-minute prayer. Close your eyes. I'm going to, I, I, I want you to do this. Holy Spirit, be working right here. When I ask you, is there some yeast in your life, something that's non-kingdom, that's inconsistent with heaven, an attitude, perhaps, what comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? And just lock it in. Maybe a person, maybe an event. And maybe something you thought you had dealt with long ago. But here it is. I just say, what's inconsistent with heaven or the kingdom? And this comes to mind. It probably means that there's still something left there. Ask God to give you the wisdom to see how this is hurting you, not them. It's polluting you. It's undermining the full depth of the kingdom life inside of you. Have the divine wisdom from above. And now there's just this challenge. Can you let it go? Doesn't mean you don't minimize it. You don't justify it. You don't condone it. You just let it go. Put it on the boat and sail it down the river and say bye-bye. I close this account. Can you do that? Holy Spirit, help us to walk in your wisdom be receiving the life that comes from Jesus Christ and releasing all other debts. We forgive our debt, our debtors as you have forgiven us. We live in love. Lord, help us to live in love as you have loved us, which means help us to forgive as you have forgiven us and to live free, free, free.